Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Bernat Ali. Bernat is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Vedanta Biosciences. The company was founded in 2010 by PureTech Health in collaboration with a handful of academic founders. At the time, the faster, cheaper tools of DNA sequencing were making it possible for immunologists and microbiologists to gain a much more fine-grained view of the complex interplay between microbes and the human immune system. Learning more about the multiple factors at work in health and disease promised to open up a treasure trove of new ideas for treatment and wellness. Vedanta has been at this a long time, and it now is at something of a turning point. It has completed a phase two trial with a lead product candidate for the treatment of C. difficile infections. With its specifically defined consortia of live bacteria made into an oral therapy, Vedanta hopes to restore the microbial community balance needed to help ward off an invasion of C. diff microbes. The company has some data showing it can reduce the risk of recurrent C. diff infections, which can cause hospitalization and death. Its task is now to reproduce those findings in phase three. Bernat has been something of a stalwart in the microbiome field over the past dozen years. He's a Catalonian immigrant who made his way to MIT and then to the biotech industry. He has an interesting personal story, including a stint as a hockey player. He's passionate about the role of immigration in making the US the world leader in biotech, and we discussed that briefly at the end. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Alpenglow Biosciences. Alpenglow sheds new light on pharmaceuticals with AI-powered 3D spatial biology. Pathology is an essential component of drug development, yet it is stuck in archaic times by looking through 2D slides. Alpenglow has developed an end-to-end drug development solution with proprietary 3D imaging, cloud processing, and AI analysis to digitize entire 3D tissues, providing 250 times more data and deeper insights. Learn how Alpenglow can illuminate your path to breakthrough results at alpenglowbiosciences.com. Now, please join me and Bernat Ali on the long run. Bernat Ali, welcome to the long run. Good to see you. Look, how are you doing? Good, good. So, Bernard, I've been looking forward to talking with you for some time because um, I've, I've written about your company since it was uh, still quite a young startup. And, and it's been it's part of the pleasure of this job is following companies over time and seeing how they, they grow and evolve and shift gears when necessary. And so I'm, I'm eager to hear some of that uh, in the later half of, of today's conversation. But uh, as you know, I like to uh, explore a little bit about the person, who, who the people are behind these these big ideas in bioscience. So um, can we start from the beginning with you? Like you're a boy from Catalonia. Correct. I appreciate you saying Catalonia, not Spain. You know, we're trying very hard to become independent and successfully. But yes, I uh, I grew up in, in Catalonia in a, in a mid-sized town called Reus. It's about an hour away from Barcelona. And our... Uh, our sole claim to fame is that Antoni Gaudí, the architect that had all these nice buildings in Barcelona that tourists like to visit, he was born in, in Braus. That's what we're known for. Well, I actually have been to Barcelona once and went through the Sagrada Familia, the famous uh, cathedral that has been uh, under construction for 100 years that, that Gaudí designed. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's was, a long... Oh, go it ahead. Funded, it was funded by donations, so it's taken a very long time. To uh, to raise the money to get there. So, um, what uh, what else was going on in uh, the times you were growing up there in uh, that northeastern region of Spain of Catalonia? So, so, the biggest event in my in my youth was probably the the Olympic Games of 1992 in Barcelona. That really changed our lives. Um, we tried to pretty up the country, and uh, and and put on the the best the best show. That that was the I think the the big event for the the children of my generation. Uh huh. Uh huh. And so, what did your mom and dad do? Um, my my dad. Uh, both of them are retired now. Recently, uh, my dad was an architect, 
and my mother uh, was a teacher. She she taught geography, history, and languages to um, mostly to to adults that had missed their chance when they were younger and they were trying to get their schooling later in life. Or also, um, increasingly over the years, she she taught more uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe or or North Africa that came to um, to Southern Europe for sort of opportunity and needed to learn some basics. Okay, so you've got some liberal arts influences there in the household. Uh, did you have siblings? Yes, I have a, I have an older brother, Linus. Uh, he's three years older, and he's also an architect like my dad. Okay, okay. So uh, when did you uh, get interested in science, or how did that happen? So I, uh, growing up, I, I was interested in, in everything, really. Like, I, I like arts. I like science. I really like athletics. I spend most of my youth playing sports and, and glued to a hockey stick. Um, but I sort of took the took the path towards science um, in college. I, I studied chemical engineering and um, that's when I really left the, the arts behind. At now, some point I hadn't even thought about journalism. Like uh, like you, but there's a very popular degree back in Catalonia when I was in high school. But ultimately, I decided Kami. Now, did you just speak Spanish in those days, or did you or did you have multiple languages? So at home, the, the language is Catalan. That's my mother tongue, and that's what I spoke, um, you know, with most of the time. But the schooling in Catalonia was done and still done bilingual, so you you have to finish speaking both Catalan and, and Spanish. And and then I also made some attempts at English uh, while at school, and that's that was the, the beginning of uh, of learning English. Okay, okay. So where did you go for your undergraduate degree? And I guess this was chemical engineering. Yes, yeah, I'm a chemical engineer by by background. So um, in the in the area of Catalonia where I live, there's a there's this big petrochemical complex. It's like largest chemical complex in the south south of Europe, in the Mediterranean. Uh, and it's a small school in Tarragona, uh, it's a school of engineering. And, um, that's where I went for, um, for, for my undergrad. How did you decide, I mean, was chemical engineering considered the, the pipeline to getting a job in the petrochemical industry? Yeah. I mean, that, that's yeah, kind of yeah. like. You nailed it. Yeah. I, um, when I finished high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I mean, I liked everything. That's like, a, that, that was my problem. Um, I remember I looked into environmental science at some point. Um, and my dad, who, who was always very hands-off and non-interventional in anything related to um, you know, career, made his one and only intervention where he suggested, you know, maybe before you study that, you should talk to some people that have actually done that degree and make sure that you understand what their labor market is like. It was, it was, it was worded very, very um, open-ended, but it, it forced me into my first research project to actually figure out, is it the right thing for me? And, and by talking to folks that had studied that, I realized it was a very, very, very limited labor market in Catalonia. Uh, while chemical engineering is vast and open many more possibilities, including doing environmental science. So that's that's why I ended up uh, going to the engineering school instead. And this was a local university, is that right? Yeah, it was a 15-minute drive from home. And that's a very common thing where I come from. You know, here in the U.S., it's very common, you know, you finish high school and you leave the nest. Um, but uh, in Catalonia... I think Southern Europe in general, it's very common. You tend to stay closer to the family and just pick a school that's nearby. So did you live at home and to save some home. money? Yeah, I lived at home uh, and saved some money, exactly, during the college years. Yeah. Okay, okay. So how did you end up going to MIT and the U.S.? So, um, this... <laughs> Back when I was in high school, I started spending some of the summers going to England to to learn to speak English. 
in school, I, I had learned to write and to read, but that's where I actually learned to speak it. I, I spent a few summers working as a, as a waiter um, in restaurants. And then when I knew enough English, uh, after doing this for, for three summers, then um, I made my first attempt at coming to the U.S. to do research. By then, I was already in college. So I went to do research in chemical engineering. And um, unfortunately, the school I came from was not really well known. And I didn't have any kind of warm connections from professors that could connect me to somebody else. So I, I did some broad carpet bombing of emailing lots of professors that were doing chemical engineering research here. Um, got lots of rejections. In fact, got rejected for everybody except for one person, a professor in the University of South Carolina that gave me my, my first chance to come and, and do research. And then that I, I did that for a few summers. I kept coming back to do uh, research in, in chemical engineering departments. A couple of summers in South Carolina and another one at Georgia Tech. And during oh so so wait these were like summer internship kind of opportunities come over to South Carolina and do some work. Uh, they were kind of create your own adventure type of opportunities because those were not organized internship programs that I joined. It was just me chasing down people until like somebody gave me the chance to stay in their lab for a period of time. Um, and now yeah, did you focus? Did you focus your search? on the United States research universities yeah. or were you looking elsewhere in the world yeah. too? Yeah, no, no. By that time I knew I wanted to come to the U.S. and I wanted to do research here. Now, why uh, is that? Um, the, the first experiences with research felt like, okay, that's the thing for me. Like it satisfied my curiosity to go into a field and, and learn. Um, and almost all of the books that I was using at school were coming were, were written by by some professors at a, at a U.S. university. So when you look them up, you realize, okay, this is, these are the guys that are doing the research that then turns into the books that then turns into what we actually do in the chemical plants, right? And it was clear that, that the most impactful research in chem-E was being done here in the U.S. So that's where I wanted to be. Um, so uh, around the time I was finishing college, I, I got a fellowship uh, from us from a Catholic institution to be able to come and, and do the PhD here. I applied to a bunch of places and um, and was able to come here to MIT. So that's a pretty big step up. I mean, MIT is the, the major leagues. You must have done okay or gotten a nice letter of recommendation from your advisor there in South Carolina or Georgia Tech. What what excited you? So I, I think I'm, I'm sure that the, that the experience in research uh, helped. Interestingly, I remember I um, the first day I, I came here at MIT, the, the head of graduate admissions, the, the one thing that he remembered about my application was not the research, not any grades or any standardized score. He was like, you were the, the professional hockey player. And that's basically what stood out, right? The fact that, that for a few years while I was in school, I had played professional hockey. There, somehow that's like what, what he remembered from the application. So it helped. Well, professional hockey, I should ask, like, what position did you play and, and what, what uh, kind of accomplishments did you have there? So I, uh, as early as I remember being able to walk, I was on skate and roller skates and playing hockey. That's a, like one of the national sports where I come from. And, and so I play hockey into my early 20s uh, in my hometown team. And uh, I started as a defender, uh, when I finally got my first break in the in the National League, the first couple of years was as a, was as a forward. That usually it's a little bit less responsibility because if you screw up, it's just a missed goal opportunity rather than a goal, than a goal on your on your uh, against you. There's a defenseman uh, behind you to help you out. <laughs> yes, uh, and then um, I went back to being a defender uh, for the last few years, uh, and I was um, was part of a team that sort of a bottom half of the of the rankings so we were not the well fine we we're kind of like the poor children in the in the national league if you will uh-huh uh-huh but this actually helped you uh stand out the extracurricular activity i mean and what, what else did you learn from hockey i mean it's a team game <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a team sport. Um, you know, growing up, um, I remember my my dad would come to all my workouts and and all of the games, and it was a it was a good school to learn many things. Right, uh, in in all of our teams, there were always uh, problem children and problem parents, and you know, I remember my 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 dad would make it a point after every game whenever he saw like a kid that did something wrong like hitting an opponent or insulting the referee or or, or cheating in some from some form he would always say you know comment it and we would discuss it on the way back home it's like this is what i saw that's why i didn't like it so it was a good school where i, I kind of learned through my dad like all the codes of behavior where things that you are and you're not supposed to do um but also, um, you know, working with a team, you know, bringing in new new players and getting them to adapt to the team, having productive relationships with the coach, um, while at the same time you have competition among the players to to earn your spot. I think these are all very very useful lessons. <clears throat> For sure, you win some, you lose some. You know, yeah. you you have to uh, pick yourself up and show up at practice the next day, regardless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all that. Well, okay. So you go to MIT for graduate school. Uh, what did you work on there? So I came in with a plan to do research in process systems engineering, um, and that plan lasted for about a day because I, I talked to the professors that were doing research in this field, and many of them were closing shop, basically having figured out that everything that was worth researching in that field had already been discovered. And I remember the guy that I really wanted to work with told me, you know, what you should really do is look into bio because that's where the future of the discipline is. So I ended up uh, sort of changing plans and going from classical process systems, like how do you operate a chemical plan, process controls, things of the sort, modeling more into, into bio. And uh, I worked for, had two co-advisors, um, Alan Hutton and Danny Wong. Um, and Danny was, Danny passed away re- recently. He was one of the early pioneers in the biotech industry that helped. Um, so, you know, back when, when uh, Genzyme, Biogen, Genentech were getting started, uh, there was really a convergence of recombinant technology and fermentation technology that enable the modality to exist and to scale. Um, Danny's lab came on the latter part, the scale, right? Once the biologists had figured out that you could do recombinant engineering, somebody had to figure out how do you bank, ferment at scale, separate out um, the proteins that you make, either in E. coli or, or Cho cells, so that you have enough of it. And today, you know, you take that for granted. Everybody knows how we do fermentation. But back then, it was a very new thing, right? So that's Well, and a lot of people thought that would naturally scale. Like if you did something in a 10-liter bioreactor, you know, you would just like multiply by 10 and do it in 100. But it's yeah. not, really, not really how that works. Exactly. And a lot of the work from that lab uh, was to fig- figuring out why some things were not scaling because of either oxygen transfer or stresses on the cells and things of the sort. And, and finding engineering solutions around that. And so I came into that lab towards the tail end. I wasn't one of last, uh, one of Danny's last students. And, um, you know, later on for me, it came back full circle because as hopefully we'll get to discuss later, today, today what we're trying to do at Vedanta in microbiome is in a way analogous, right? Our, the microbiome field started with this sort of fecal derived approaches where the product is a donation just like in biotech, it started with plasma transfusions. But then at some point, biotech figured out how to make biologics from cell banks. And that addressed a lot of issues around scalability, safety, supply, et cetera. And in many ways, that's what we're trying to do in the microbiome field. Go okay. eliminate the donor so you can use classic fermentation technology and cell banking to make products of uh, sort of standard properties. Well, let's get to that in a little bit, but um, you're, so you, you get your, your chemical engineering, it's beginning to veer toward the bio end of things. This is kind of, you know, where the future is, you can see it. 
Uh, you also pick up an MBA at Sloan, I guess, yeah. in parallel. Uh, so were you, what were you thinking that you might use that for? So that was part of the program that I was in. Um, my, my program at MIT was, is called a PhD in chemical engineering practice. And it's a program that combines the PhD at chemical engineering and the MBA at Sloan. Actually, the first year of the MBA, but then you can stay for the second one to finish it. And that's basically the brainchild of some professors at ChemE that over the years had seen a lot of chemical engineers take interest in, in taking courses at the business school. Uh, and they basically finagled a way for, for that to be formalized so that there'd be some small program where you could do um, both degrees. And so okay. for the first few years, I worked on the PhD. And then the last year, I was supposed to work only on the MBA. Um, however, you know, I, I wasn't quite done by the time I needed to start this business school classes for me, the two overlapped in time. Um, okay. But so it sounds like you were thinking about going to work in industry, uh, early on, yeah. not, not really thinking that, you know, you'd stay around in academia. Um, yeah, yeah I, I knew I wanted to go to industry. That, that part was clear. Okay. So then you go to pure tech. Uh, how did that happen? So, um, my my job search was was not exemplary <laughs> in 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 any way, um, and I kind of stumbled on that opportunity. I got really lucky. Um, I remember in the early days uh, of the search, I looked first into consulting. I, I looked at the three big strategy consulting firms. Um, got rejected by all of them. And um, that really kind of forced me to ask myself, what do I really want to do? Because I realized I had only really applied to those because the classmates were also applying to those. And since they were very smart people, you know, you think, well, if very smart people want to do this, it's got to be a good thing. But it's actually not if it's not what you want to do. <laughs> um, so I got these first few rejections. And then... Um, I was on a J-1 visa and my time was running out also. I had, I think I was well into my grace period and I would have had to pack my, my uh, bags back and go back uh, when the, the visa expired. And uh, the pure tech opportunity kind of fell from the, from the sky because uh, I, I didn't know what venture creation was, uh, didn't have any experience in the field. Um, but it sounded that time where I was doing a lot of introspection of like, what do I really want to do? It sounded like the right thing for me because um, I was going to be working on evaluating uh, scientific work and trying to figure out if that could be a good business opportunity. And that's something that during my PhD thesis, I had already been doing kind of for fun without knowing it. Like I would, every Friday, I would grab the number of science in nature and read through the whole thing. And see like, you know, what what I found interesting in there, and think about you know how could you turn some of these things into businesses. So the idea of of getting paid for doing that to me made a lot more sense than some of the things that I had been trying and getting rejected at. So it's almost uh, like another another degree program where you can really learn the the um, how to create companies, how to take science and apply it uh, in startup yeah. companies. That, that's yeah, that, what Pure Tech and Daphne and her crew, uh, what they were doing then. Exactly. The, the, the 10 years I spent then at, at Pure Tech with Daphne, with David Steinberg and some of the other folks there were really a, um, an apprenticeship of uh, how to do biotech creation. Um, and for me, it was extremely useful because coming into that work, I... You know, I, I didn't have the confidence to go out and jump and you know, start your own company. Uh, that that would have that, that thought would have seemed ridiculous to me at, at the time of graduation. But after doing it a few times and just breaking it into pieces, the process kind of got demystified. You know, you start to do scientific analysis of the technologies and you evaluate these components and then you evaluate the IP and then you find the right scientific founders and the right technology. And like when you break the things into pieces and you see it executed multiple times, it becomes 
less intimidating. And so PureTech was, I think, was an excellent apprenticeship for for that. Well, PureTech also had a lot of variety of projects going on and just a lot of plates spinning simultaneously. So like you, you weren't going to get stuck in any one dead end or something. I mean, if something didn't work, you could just skip to the next thing. And some things did not work. Uh, in fact, yeah, I, I worked on, I think, six projects there and half of them never saw the light of the day because we decided to kill them for not making the grade on a number of parameters. You know, we one of the projects I worked on, we wrote this off because we couldn't find really good proprietary technology to form the company around, although the vision was wonderful. Uh, another time we had the right technology, but we couldn't reproduce the data of the PI. And so there, there's always things that can kill a project early on. And, and it did happen a few times. Um, so can, and, can you... Can you talk just a little bit about now, like Vedanta, the, what were you seeing in the microbiome field? This would have been about 10 years ago. Yeah. What was sort of the spark that, that got the PureTech crew interested in this field? So, so back around 09, 2010, uh, PureTech had raised a little bit of money um, and and Daphne had sent the young Padawans like myself to go out and scout for new ideas. And so out of that, that effort, um, uh, Andrew Miller did some of the work that led to Karuna and then he took that project forward. And that's now a public company in the CNS space. And, and Eddie Martucci had, was doing some of the early work that led to Achille in digital therapeutics. And then they just went public on a SPAC. Um, and at the same time, I got interested in microbiome. And the reason I got interested is at around that time, the NIH had declared the human microbiome project. They had redirected a lot of the sequencing capability that they built during the human genome project and put it to use in the human microbiome project. And there was funding going to labs for exploratory work, which was largely cartographic work that helped map out what the microbiomes of healthy individuals look like and how do they compare with individuals that have diseases. There was also some early fecal transplantation work that suggested, was starting to suggest from back then non-controlled studies that if you intervene in patients uh, in some diseases that there could be meaningful, meaningful outcomes. And so at that time, I spent, um, I spent a solid couple of years, myself and others in the team, basically landscaping the field, going to conferences, meeting PhDs, postdocs, learning about the work that everybody was doing. Uh, we evaluated over hundred different technologies. And ultimately I became very interested in the work that some immunologists were doing. I felt that some of the, some of the work that I found most interesting was coming out of immunology labs that were taking a, trying to take a step beyond this black box that is fecal transplantation into understanding how specific bacteria modulate specific immune responses and going What's to the molecular level. It's interesting how you bring up these two things. There was the, the sequencing capabilities that had been used for the Human Genome Project. They're being repurposed for this other thing. And, and it, it leads us to some of these applications later. But um, could you say just a little bit like how important that was to the field to have that ability to, to sequence lots and lots of individual strains of microbes from, you know, a really diverse community sample, like from a stool sample. There's so many different kinds of bacteria in there. So to be able to see with like fine grain detail, um, kind of what's, what's happening there, like how many different um, strains there are and, and how they might... Uh, interact or play against each other? Yeah. So, so what, what that did is it enabled the, the field to go from being lim limited by culture methods to being unlimited by culture methods. So but before that, you could study what you could culture, and most of the work was microbiology. Slow. After, yeah, slow and, and focused on the microbe. But after you could take this very broad census of the communities of bacteria that live in different niches in the body or in nature, now you could do microbial ecology. 
you could understand the communities of bacteria that lived in there and how they interacted, right? Um, and and that uh, that really changed the field because ultimately understanding the microbiome relies on ecology interactions between bacteria, not just individual bacteria. And those tools uh, made it so that even if you couldn't grow many of the things that were in those samples, you can now still study them and understand what they did. And so following that, there was an explosion of, of research work where many microbiologists, uh, immunologists and beyond got their own sequencing, uh, uh, access to a sequencing core or sequencing machine and started getting into the field. It's um, like being able to look at the whole forest instead of just one tree. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you can also see uh, a normal, healthy forest <laughs> in, a, say, a national park versus something down the road where there was a forest fire, burned down a whole bunch of things, like, and, and, and really map out the differences in, in, in a detailed way. Yeah. And, and some of the early work in the field that got the NIH interested was going in that direction. There were some early studies that showed that just took a swab of some of the um, areas in the human body, like the oral cavity, and looked at what's in there. The diversity of organisms was beyond what anybody had imagined. And so that really made the imagination of researchers fly in terms of what could be studied. Biology lives in 3D. Yet most research in pathology is still practiced on 2D slides. Alpenglow sheds new light on drug development with AI-powered 3D spatial biology. In 3D, we can better understand tissue structures like nerves and vessels, complex cellular distributions in the tumor microenvironment, or detect rare cells and drug targets. It's time for us to start looking at the world in 3D and accelerate drug development with AI-powered 3D insights. See what you've been missing by partnering with Alpenglow at alpenglowbiosciences.com. And do you enjoy listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love getting full access to my coverage of the top people and trends, my popular front points column on Fridays, plus the expert views of biotech leaders who I curate and edit on timmermanreport.com. Subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. And once people subscribe, they renew year after year at remarkably high rates. Find out why. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click subscribe. Now, how did this interact with the immunology world? Because this is this kind of yin-yang. There, there was microbiology, the people that studied microbes. And then there would have been, you know, these people that studied microbial communities. But yeah. then, like a lot of what's really interesting in the, in the therapeutic sense is how these microbial communities that we all coexist with, how do they, how do they interact with our immune system in, yeah. in healthy or unhealthy ways? Yeah, yeah. So th there's been always some degree of overlap between microbiologists and immunologists because of the things that microbes do to our immune system, especially pathogens. Um, but... By and large, immunologists a decade ago were largely fascinated by the thymus. And it was um, a little over a decade ago that the work of some of our co-founders, initially Ruslan Metatov, showed that the um, interactions between good commensal organisms that live in the intestine and the immune system play very important roles in our health. And that's the work that really got me hooked, right? Uh, both understanding that microbes, good microbes interacted with the immune system, but also that um, the new interface that was really necessary to understand immunology was in fact the intestine, not just the thymus, the intestine, because the majority of cells of the immune system at any point in time are in the intestine. And they're interacting, they're coming into close contact with all of those microbial communities, the good and the bad. And the yeah. good are part of what help maintain homeostasis, right? Like an right. immune system that's not attacking healthy tissues, that's not autoimmune, for instance. Exactly. So, so the reason we have so many immune cells in the intestine is precisely because of the microbiome, because they have to patrol these communities of organisms 
and make very, the immune system has to make very nuanced decisions between which ones get booted out, the pathogens, and which ones are allowed to stay in. And in the, in the early creation of Vedanta, that's part of the foundational thesis, right? What, what Ruslan first proposed as, as, the, as the foundational vision is, look, um, there's a multiplicity of, of mechanisms back then still not understood that the immune system must use to tolerate all these microbes. And the reason we know that, that those have to exist is that if you look at what we know about molecular microbe communication, at the time, all was known was uh, telegraph receptor communication, right? But the, the molecules that signal to telegraph receptors are made by both pathogens as well as non-pathogenic commensals. So these, organism, th these mechanisms did not help explain why the immune system treats pathogens so differently than it treats commensals. So there had to be other mechanisms that, that, that explain a tolerance, right? And, and so we set, out, we set out to identify these types of mechanisms with Vedanta, to find mechanisms by which, quote-unquote, good bacteria in the intestine establish or stimulate the immune response in a way that instead of triggering rejection, triggers tolerance. Okay, okay. Now that's, that still sounds pretty basic, but you alluded to earlier the fecal transplantation um, findings that happened around this same period of time. Um, can you tell people who aren't familiar, like what happened and why was that so interesting from a biological and, and a medical perspective? So about, about 10 years ago, we started seeing case reports of gastroenterologists and, and infectious disease dogs treating individual patients with fecal transplants to, um, to treat recurrent C. difficile infections that were not responsive to antibiotics. Then so C. diff, C. diff for those who aren't familiar, is this bacterial infection people get often in hospitals or after a hospital visit, and it, it like takes over the gut and causes massive bi uh, diarrhea, and it can actually be deadly. Um, 40-some 40, 40 thousand people die per year from C. diff recurrent infections. So it's yeah. not a small thing. Yeah, indeed. So, so those case studies then became proper studies, and then they became randomized control studies, and then they became multiple randomized control studies. And over the years, the evidence piled up that it was clear that, that in that indication, there was good evidence that changing the microbiota of patients could have a very meaningful clinical outcome. But now, now back it up, just, just, just sorry for those who, again, aren't familiar, the, there was traditionally uh, when people came to the doctor with a recurrent C. diff infection, they would get hit with a broad spectrum antibiotic that just killed the C. diff and, you know, lots of other uh, commensal bacteria, lots of collateral damage, but just yep. blast it, right? Correct. Fecal transplant was a different approach. Correct. Yeah, so, so antibiotics are still used today. Um, for, for the early lines of treatment of C. difficile infection. Vancomycin is very common. And most patients benefit from the antibiotic. But among the patients that don't, insisting in using the antibiotic again and again has very little, um, uh, very little upside. Every additional course further damages the community of good bacteria in the intestine. And that makes it so that the patient loses that first line of resistance against invasion, which is your own commensal bacterial flora. And the early work with fecal transplantation basically established proof of principle that if you come after the antibiotic and you reconstitute that bacterial community, you can prevent the recurrence of the infection very effectively. Uh, so this, this, this is taking a, uh, a fecal transplant from you know, a so-called healthy person I mean, maybe, maybe you don't really, you don't know what is in that whole person's community, uh, but you transplant it into a sick person and it reconstitutes their, their microbial communities and sort of the, the immune system readjusts to the new, the, the new stimuli. Yeah, we, we've seen in, in clinical work that after, in most patients, not all of them, after a fecal transplant from a healthy individual, they can reconstitute a community that now is able to resist the reinfection with a pathogen. Um, and then in other indications, like for example, in inflammatory bowel disease or beyond, 
we're now also starting to study, we, I mean, the field at large, how this um, event of colonization with, with foreign microbes also affects the immune response in humans. That's the next frontier. So the, the fecal transplant was, was exciting because it worked. Um, but it has its drawbacks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not an ideal way to treat a whole lot of people with recurrent C. diff. So how, how did your thinking evolve along these lines? Like what, what could you do that might be better? That borrowed from some of the insight here, but that would be more practical. Yeah, so you know, going back to, to my PhD experience, um, I had mentioned before that the, the work in my PID really helped the field of biologics move from plasma-derived products that relied on donors into biologics made from clonal cell banks. And you know, today we have more than 100 monoclonals approved, and it's clear what's the preferred option by the pharma industry, right? Um, my bet, as we got Vedanta started, was that the same was going to happen with the microbiome field. Using donor-derived approaches made sense if you wanted to do something quick and dirty, no point intended, get to the clinic quickly, get some information uh, and see if there's a clinical effect. But if you looked at the end game and work backwards, for me, the end game was, well, once somebody figures out how to make microbiome products from cell banks in a defined manner so that you always have the same product in a scalable, cost-efficient way, why would, every, why would anybody want to take fecal material, right? And so we set out to do all the difficult work to identify, select, and grow under GMP conditions uh, bacteria from cell banks so that we can turn them into products that were defined in nature. And what we mean by defined is that there is no donor uh, of a known uncharacterized composition. Instead, your product is made from clonal cell banks that lead a composition that is always exactly the same and it has the same properties. And that has multiple implications. First, um, you eliminate the risk of transferring pathogens from a donor, like potentially viruses or, or pathogenic bacteria. Uh, second, you have a, a composition that is always exactly the same. So you eliminate that source of variability that could confound clinical trial results. And the variability is really important because like, even if you take samples from the same healthy donor at all in January, that, that same donor might, might provide a, a different sample a few months later, depending on what, what might've happened. And so like, there's just all kinds of uh, variability. Uh, exactly. When, when, you're, when you're testing donor-derived products, you're never testing the same drug twice. Every batch is essentially a different drug with a different composition of bacteria, which means that the results could and should be different across right. the board. And if you're making uh, pharmaceuticals, you want it to be consistent and reliable and predictable. Exactly, exactly. You want it to be efficacious and safe, but you also want it to be so that your process can generate a product that has the same properties from batch to batch. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then the third key differentiation for me was the scalability. Right? At some point, people don't usually think about scalability until they have to. You know, early on, we focus on safety, and then we focus on efficacy. Um, but to me, it was clear that you know, if you have to rely on hundreds of people, thousands of people volunteering to donate tool, go to centers, accumulate all those donations, and that's the basis of, our, of, our, of your product, that this would be a very difficult to scale process. But if instead we turn it upside down, we eliminate the donor, and we made the progress from cell banks, then you can keep scaling fermentations larger. That's what I did for my thesis. You just make a 2,000 liter fermentation instead of a 100 liter fermentation. And But now uh, one, one, one of the tricks here though would have been, like you mentioned, there's so many bugs in there. I mean, trillion, right? Trillions. Um, and how do you know which ones are the necessary ones for therapeutic purposes and which ones are just bystanders? And how, how many do you need um, you know, so you, you've really got to like figure out the, you know, um, separating the wheat from the chaff to use a, you know, a layman's term. Yeah. And this is, this is, uh, something that's intimidated folks that have looked into the field, uh, pharma companies and investors, right? There's a certain degree of complexity. 
um, we don't have trillions of different bacteria. We have trillions of copies of, of the same bacteria, but, but you still have hundreds of different species of bacteria that live into humans. And hundreds is still a lot, right? You have lots of bacterial, bacterial interactions, bacterial host interactions. And um, this, there's no, no way around this. It's a, it's a complex field. And you can't have, you know, there's not going to be one single bullet in all likelihood. Like if you want to tamp down something like C. difficile infections, you, you're, you're going to need some combination of strains of bacteria that, that, are, that are borrowing from what Mother Nature is telling us from the fecal transplant. Not all several hundred, um, but some. That's what we found from our work. Uh, if I look back at the foundational insights from Vedanta, the first one was one of our co-founders, Dr. Hon in Japan, finding that bacteria could induce regulatory T-cells in the intestine. The other one was finding that combining bacteria as consortia, if you made the right combination, could be much more potent than using individual bacteria or more reductionistic approaches. And, and the reason why is that in... Uh, in nature, uh, all ecosystems have compartmentalization and, and division of labor. You have multiple different organisms that work together to a certain functions. You rarely have instances where a single organism's collapsing could bring down the whole ecosystem. It's, it's usually more that there's niches that, that can be served by multiple organisms. And so we made it a point to build the tools, the, the bacteria libraries, the screening systems, the manufacturing tools to be able to explore vast numbers of combinations of bacteria of different composition, of different, different size, different numbers of bacteria um, to understand which ones had the properties that we were seeking. And you're right, there is no magic bullet. For, for any of the problems we've looked at, you can find multiple combinations of bacteria that can do the job, but you can also find many more combinations that cannot do the job. And so the art is having the tools that point you towards the, one that's work, the ones that work. Can you talk a little bit about your lead candidate? Because I know last fall you uh, presented some what looked to be pretty encouraging phase two data in C. diff um, in infections. Um, can you say a little bit about what, what's in that product and what, it's, what are its properties? And then a little bit about what you observed in the, tr in the trial. Yeah, so this is a defined consortium of eight different species of bacteria uh, that are uh, commensals that can live in the human intestine that we selected based on the ability to outcompete Clostridioides difficile, which is the pathogen that we're trying to fight against. We, um, we first run a phase one study in healthy volunteers where we asked some basic questions around pharmacology. We wanted to understand how much bacteria is enough, like what, what dose is sufficient, uh, what dose duration gives you the best colonization by the bacteria. And does it work better if it comes immediately after an antibiotic or if you just give it on your own? And through some of this early work, we found combinations of parameters that gives us the best pharmacokinetics, i.e. that maximizes how much colonization we get with a given dose. And then we took some of the doses that were promising into a phase two study, the one that you mentioned, where in patients that have C. difficile, we compared... Actually, Bernard, can, before you get there, can you explain? This is an orally available treatment, and it's it's live bacteria. Uh, so uh, it, it's it's eight different species. You you keep it in the fridge. Um, how how does it how stable is it? So uh, this is a product that you take orally in a capsule. It was like any other oral drug. Inside of the capsule, there's lyophilized powder, freeze dried bacteria, basically. So if if you've ever watched um, the, the second movie of Star Wars, you know, when where they freeze Han Solo and Carbonite? Yes. They wake him up in the next episode. That's what we do with the bacteria. Like we, we freeze dry them so that they're hibernating. But when the, the capsule reaches the intestine, then they wake up again and they can start colonizing. That's the next episode. And um, we have equal amounts of each of the bacteria uh, in the capsule. And um, we make them by, by fermentation and freeze drying. And they take root, so to speak, and crowd out the C. diff uh, problematic bug that's in there. Correct. Immediately after a patient has finished their normal course of antibiotic, uh, we come in 
with multiple days of dosing with that composition. And what we've seen in patients is that that helps reconfigure the bacterial community towards a community that can now resist the return of CD difficile. So uh, in terms of clinical endpoints, what we saw in the study that's of most relevance is that if you compare the patients that received the intervention with the patients that, that only received placebo, um, in the placebo arm, roughly half of the patients spontaneously get better. Their microbiomes recover naturally, but the other half doesn't, and they, they experience a recurrence of C. difficile. While in contrast, when they received our drug, 86% um, of the patients had sustained cure. Um, so we, we were able to see a separation of about 30 points in terms of, of protection. 30, 31 point difference in absolute terms from a 50-50 chance of recurrence down to, well, I mean, an 80, 81% chance that you're okay. Exactly. So basically, we cannot guarantee you that you're not going to have a recurrence, but we can push down the probability so that it becomes less of a concern. That's a, a pretty uh, encouraging result. Um, how, um, well, I, I want to ask you about the financing of this. I know, you you know, an entrepreneur, you're out there raising money all the time for, for this, uh, the, the idea, different, and different people are interested at different stages. You've been doing this for 10 years. Um, who's, who's been backing this at, for the long run? So there's been um, a set of investors that have had long-term conviction in the field. Many of them have made multiple investments in different microbiome companies, and we've been lucky to be supported by a number of them. So in, in our early days, um, uh, and still to, to, to an extent today, um, PureTech played a very important role. Uh, not just as, as institutional founder, but also with significant financing for the company. Um, we uh, we also added investors like Seventure, uh, Rock Springs, financial investors that have Magnetar that have invested in, in the microbiome field. But then, besides some of the more traditional financial investors, there's also been some strategic groups that that have had interest in the field, and in our case. A meaningful amount of our funding also came from from those groups, either as equity funding or as non dilutive funding. Strategics those... being large pharma. Um, yeah. yeah. So, for and... example, yeah. Go ahead. So, for example, um, Pfizer was one of the larger investors in our last financing. They have an interest in our IBD program. Um, the Gates Foundation has been working with us uh, as an investor for some years now. We have some joint interests in applications of our technology in low and middle income countries. Uh, and BARDA, the, the agency of the US government that stockpiles national security drugs, they also um, fund via contract a significant portion of the, of the costs of our lead program because it, it has a potential angle that's relevant to national security. What would you say, I mean, you mentioned this earlier that um, large companies or a lot of people have looked at this field and thought this is really interesting science, but how do you intervene? It's so complicated. There's so many moving parts. Um, there's just some reticence. Well, more of a, I guess, you know, enthusiasm that's tempered by, well, wait and see. <laughs> and it's your yeah. job to kind of like help them get through the wait and see, right? Yeah. Wait and see is a blessing and a curse. Um, obviously, you want people to come in. So there's plenty of money to do the work that you want to do. But you don't want too many of them to come in. <laughs> Um, so the, the blessing is that it's given us a few years to really figure out a lot of the kings of the technology to get to the point where we could do this reproducibly, right? When we started, we didn't know how to rationally select the bacteria. And then we didn't know how to make GMP bacteria. Um, and, and so we've had a few years to really figure all of these things out. Um, but yes, you're right. There's a perception that this is a complex field and, and it is. I think the um, you know, a, a thing that, that makes some pharma folks um, uneasy is most drug development, you can do it successfully if you have great understanding of chemistry, biology, and data science. But in our field, that's not enough. You also need to understand microbial ecology. And farmers don't employ investors don't employ microbial ecologists. And the problem is that 
nothing in the microbiome field makes sense except in the light of microbial ecology to 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 steal the the quote from uh, that Ukrainian guy, um, Dobzhansky, the, the evolutionary biologist. You have to understand microbiology to understand the field. All these micro-microbe interactions, micro-post interactions. And uh, if you're looking at it through the lens of single targets being hit by single molecules and, and drawing a straight line from a molecule to a target, to a mechanism, that's not how the systems work. You're in for a lot of pain. <laughs> Well, yeah. And, it, you know, I was thinking about this beforehand that, you know, if you think about, say, cancer drug development or rare disease, often, you know, the big successes are where you found one, you know, gene mutation and you've come up with just the, 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 a hammer, like this one thing that just knocks it down uh, or maybe two things that knock it down together. Uh, in the case of virology. And, and in here, we're dealing with so many different factors. You don't want to hit you know, this thing with a hammer, it's, it's more like, I don't know, like a rubber mallet, <laughs> something that's a little softer, because, you know, it, it, there's, there's all kinds of potential downstream uh, implications with the immune system, you don't want to, like, especially if you're talking about autoimmunity, um, that there's like, there's, there's Goldilocks effects that you're, you're looking for. Yeah. And, and look, I'm sure there's going to be people that, that are going to successfully do what I just said, I don't like. Uh, or I'm not excited about, which is find a token single molecule from microbes that, that hits really well, a target that happens to be very well validated, and that leads to a disease effect. There's enough people working in the field that this is going to happen. But I think that, to me, the opportunity that I'm more excited about is what can you do with microbiome drugs that you cannot do with existing drug classes? What can you do that you cannot do with a small molecule, with a protein, with an oligo? And the opportunity here is have an effect on the host at the ecological level, perturb the community of organisms and push it towards health. That's what would be very difficult to do with a more reductionistic approach, right? And if you want to go in that direction, you almost have to embrace that complexity. It's like, be like bring it on, right? That's exactly what you need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the proof will be um, in the clinical endpoints. I mean, you, you can you know really work yourself up on you know, studying each individual biological component and, and how it perturbs the community. And I'm sure you're doing that. And it's important to understand that so that you can achieve that rationality that you're talking about. But um, ultimately, I mean, it's going to be about like, if you have a successful drug, it's, it's whether or not you, you prevent recurrent C. diff, or, you know, you can have an effect against something like ulcerative colitis, which we haven't even talked about. Yeah. Um, that, that maybe some of these other, you know, small molecule or biologic hammers, for lack of a better term, that, that you can do things, you can pre- achieve balance or homeostasis that, that isn't quite the way those other treatments work. Yeah. And, and here, I think, is where indication intellection becomes really, really important because the microbiome is, is being studied clinically in many, many indications. And logically, many of them are not going to work or they're going to have effect sizes that are not meaningful enough in the clinic to really change the course of, of these patient populations. So I think that in this early days of the field, picking indications like CDF or I think ulcer colitis in that same bucket, where there is compelling evidence from randomized control studies that if you change that community, you can have meaningful effect sizes that are comparable or superior to the standard of care that these patients have. Um, is very important uh, and not getting too distracted by the thousands of things that you could do um, once the field is mature and really focusing on the ones that are most likely to work today. I think this this is a very important part of um, bringing the field to a different place where broadly investors and pharma believe this is something that they need to pay attention to. Well, I should mention it didn't really help a few years ago when, you know, a couple of other, there were, there were some well-known failures in the field and a lot of investors kind of, you know, soured for a while. This is what, you know, leads you, you have to have some of that, that stamina uh, that, I, that I like to showcase on this show. Uh, it didn't affect, it, it wasn't some blanket indictment that affected you. Your approach is different, um, but still makes it more difficult to, to raise money, at least for a time. I, I, I want to call. I want to come back to um, the that lead program, though, which really does show some pretty interesting data. What, what's your next step there in the clinic? So the, the next step will be to collect feedback from uh, from FDA 
on a design for a phase three that is acceptable, that we all agree that if we hit certain endpoint, that that would, would justify an approval, um, and then execute on that. If we did that well, then this could be the first defined consortium drug that gets approved, i.e. not, not based on, on donations. But we first have to now show in a phase three study that what we saw in the phase two is in fact not a fluke, but a real signal with the right statistical significance. How long do you think that program might take the phase three? So I think realistically, uh, we'd be, and, and now I have to be careful not to put words in the mouth of the FDA because ultimately we're going to do what the FDA says we should do. But if you look at precedent in the field, I think that you could expect that um, a study with about 300 patients worth of a safety database uh, could justify uh, an approval if, if it's designed satisfactorily. Uh, so that's what we're aiming for. Um, and, you know, I, I think that you could be looking at you know, something in the vicinity of two years of work to get to that data. Okay. Okay. You don't need to follow these patients forever. You can probably get them, you know, after 30, 60, and 90-day follow-ups and see whether or not they are, in fact, recurring. Yeah. The, the, the vast majority of the interesting action, if you will, in C. difficile happens in the first eight weeks after you, you've received an antibiotic. If, you, if you're going to experience a recurrence, chances are it's going to be doing that, that early window. So that's why the endpoints of the studies focus on that um, two-month window. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Well, this will give us something to watch for from Vedanta for uh, the, the next uh, several years, because uh, this, uh, th this is what all development stage companies aspire to, get to that point where you find out, do you, in fact, really have a product? Uh, and then it, it changes the, your whole trajectory. Um, last thing I want to ask you, Bernat, since we started off talking about your roots in Catalonia, uh, you're an immigrant. You, you, I know you and I share um, you know, points of view here about the importance of immigration to the U.S. biotechnology industry. This, I, I've just had a chance to meet so many talented people from so many different countries. I don't even know how many countries <laughs> uh, who come here and do amazing things in biotech. What, um, what, what's happening from that immigration perspective now from your vantage point as a company leader? Are, are you still able to recruit great people from around the world or is it more difficult either through bureaucratic reasons or, or cultural reasons, maybe people being a little less eager? I, I don't know. Um, are, are you still seeing a, a great pipeline of people who want to come here and do this kind of work? The debate on immigration is always heated. Even for high-skilled biotech talent or tech talent, there is debate. Uh, is the H-1B being used to push the salaries down? It's obviously not. You know, there's a talent shortage in biotech. Um, the salaries are being pushed up. The obvious solution to that is you need more talent. You need to get more people from other places, right? And so I think we're in a good place right now. We're in a good place because the, the Biden administration has started to undo a lot of the harmful actions that the Trump administration had taken against the H-1B system and, and other aspects of the immigration discussion. But also because COVID has really broadened the view of, of talent access. You know, the way to access uh, foreign town before was via immigration. That's the path that I followed, the, the American dream to a green card citizenship. But now we can employ folks that work from another country on a different time zone, and this is becoming more normalized, right? So um, I think it's a good, it's a good time. Uh, we're going to see, we're seeing a more enlightened view from the new administration to facilitate um, immigration from STEM and just general access to tech talent. But we're also going into a world where having folks in your team that work from another country will be much more easy and much more acceptable. And in biotech, we need to tap on that opportunity, especially in the Boston area, because there's so much competition for talent. You know, you want to find an immunologist, a computational biologist. Some of those positions are really hard to fill. You need to, to be able to look to a, at a broad pool of candidates. Well, it is a team sport, uh, to borrow a phrase from earlier, and it is a globalized industry. Uh, we've seen this from uh, 
there's a well-known chemistry group, CRO, out of the Ukraine, uh, Enamine, which a lot of people use. And But, you know, I would like to think that there's still avenues in which people, whether it's from Ukraine or for other countries, can come here, can freely flow back and forth uh, and, and either, you know, do the work wherever they can have the most impact. Um, but ideally, I mean, we, we would we would be creating a lot of these great new medicines here. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Ronald Reagan put it best on his on his departure speech when he said that we draw our strength from every country and every corner of the world. And if we ever close the door to new Americans, our leadership in the world would soon be lost. Like in the context of a war now, uh, and 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 uh, superpowers planning their 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 future, that advantage that the U.S. has is priceless. The scientific community is open. It's open to bright people from all over the globe, and I think you're one of the the testimonials to that. Um, and uh, I hope that in the next uh, 10 years, we can have a whole different conversation about how the microbiome field has evolved and, and how you've been a part of it. Hopefully a lot earlier than that, but yes. <laughs> I'm sticking around that field. Bernard Ali, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks, look, a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.